heart uh, are really all generosity. And just before we sat this morning, I found myself talking uh, unexpectedly. Uh, if you know the unexpectedly story, I'll never get to what I want to say. Uh, it's worthwhile telling, though, because it's a little good piece of dharma. Uh, my friend Sheila tells this story about her friend whose aunt died not long ago. Her aunt was old, and uh, uh, um, had uh, been, uh, whether she had Alzheimer's or not, or some other kind of old person's uh, losing of mental faculties. She did have losing of mental faculties. And uh, she lost uh, all of her facility for speech, um, except for two words. And uh, she also, but she remembered that you're supposed to speak. And uh, she, people came and visited her in the uh, residence facility where she lived, and they spoke to her. And she knew you're supposed to sit up and look at them and more or less interact, but she really didn't have the mental capacity to respond in kind to what people said. But every once in a while, uh, out of an awareness that she should respond in some way, verbally, she would say one of her two words. And she had only two words. Her two words were unexpectedly and temporarily. <laughs> and they're, in a certain sense, the whole of Dharma. So, uh, the, I mean, everything happens unexpectedly. Um, and everything is temporarily. I mean, well, the sun doesn't rise unexpectedly, but, you know, the things that happen in our lives are unexpectedly. Um, uh, my, one of my very closest friends uh, was in Hawaii, is in Hawaii still, meant to be back by now, went to Hawaii on holiday and uh, teaching some and was in Maui and taught and had a wonderful holiday. And in the Maui airport, pushing her suitcase uh, up a small ramp, which she should have been able to do, on one of those wagons. The wagon lurched and fell over, and she fell over and broke her leg in five places. So unexpectedly and temporarily, she is in Queen's Hospital in Maui. She's okay. I talked to her on the phone, but she's supposed to be back here. But now she's unexpectedly and temporarily in a cast for three months, and that wasn't what she meant to be doing now. Uh, but when you think about how, really, from day to day, you don't know the next moment, we think that it's going to be a certain way. We're always planning. You say, well, I'm going to do this. Man, my mother-in-law used to say, she'd been gone a long time, she used to say, um, this especially annoyed me when I was young. <laughs> I would say, uh, so, Mother, are you coming for dinner on Sunday? And she'd say, well, we should live and be well. I'll, you know, be there. Or I'll let you know. And, uh, you know, I want, like to plan the dinner in advance and make certain preparations. And she would say, we should live and be well. You know, be Sunday. Now I think to myself, we should live and be well. Mary meant to be back here, 
And she's not. She's in Queen's Hospital. She lived, but she's not exactly well. You know, we should live and be well. When we say to our children, when I said to my child, no, you cannot drop out of college now because your whole career depends on you, your whole life depends on your being in college. It didn't depend on her being in college. And she stayed because we obliged, because it was those days. And she has a, it's fine. But I don't know what her life would have been like if she would have done otherwise. Maybe better, you know? How do I know? But we're always making decisions as if we know. And we're always feeling bad. That's not so bad. You know, we make the decisions. I make the decision to brush my teeth as if I'm going to live long and I'll need good teeth. So it's a, you know, I mean, there are good decisions. I take vitamins because it's probably a good decision. But we respond as if we know whether things are good things or bad things when they happen. And you just don't know, really, that each of our lives uh, in this moment is what it is because of every single thing that ever happened to you in your life, including the stuff that you rather didn't happen. So that there's a way in which equanimity, which is what I want to talk about today, depends on knowing that we cannot have the perspective that usually we can't be, usually hard to hold that perspective in which you can feel in your heart the truth, which is you don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a thing that's happening that's changing the course of your life. But whether it's good or not good, I thought about it so much earlier this year. I mean, those of us who live in Marin County remember that there was a young girl from Tiburon who uh, was killed when a car rode up on the sidewalk in Santa Barbara when she, where she was going to college. And I thought so much about how happy her family probably was when she got that acceptance in Santa Barbara and how dismayed they would have been if she hadn't gotten that acceptance in Santa Barbara. And um, what if she hadn't gone to Santa Barbara and had gone to Chico State, you know? Maybe she would have been disappointed. Oh, I should have been there and not here. But maybe that, but she wouldn't have been on that sidewalk when that car rode up on it. But then you don't know what would have happened on the way to Chico State. You don't know whatever would have happened anywhere. You know, really don't know. And we keep thinking and operating and feeling as if we do know. So the piece that I wanted to just mention, for those of you who haven't been here before, is that equanimity uh, and generosity are the two ends of the list of the paramitas. There's a list of the ten characteristics of a purified heart. Remember earlier when we began to sit and I was talking about the vision of a monk, that it's good for you to run into a monk in the street. Uh, It's good for me to run into a monk in the street because it reminds me that I don't need nearly as much as I think I need to be happy. I don't need as much stuff and I probably don't need, period, as much as I think I need. My very friend in Hawaii, uh, 
in the hospitals, my friend Mary, who years ago said to me, we were teaching a class together, and we were doing the lesson plans for it, and we were a little late. I looked down at my watch, and I said, look what time it is. And we said, oh, we have to go. And we picked up all our books and papers, and we were rushing out my door in Kenfield. And I said, um, wait, I don't have everything I need. And she said, absolutely, positively, sweetheart, you're never going to have everything you need. <laughs> and uh, I took a lot of heart from that. First of all, she says things with such conviction. you know. <laughs> and in a certain sense, uh, in, in all the intervening years, probably coming on 30 now since she told me that, there have been plenty of places where I've come to teach where I've thought, oh, I could have prepared a little more, I could have brought a little more, I should have brought the Mary Oliver poem, uh, I should have brought the Neruda poem at least. Or, uh. And then you, you just manage without it. You have everything that you need, or you never have everything that you need, but you make the best. And I'm beginning to think that after all these years of telling, I don't know how many people, you're never going to have everything you need, that I really need to change it and say, I think we have everything we need. And uh, in fact, the only thing we need is a human heart, which we have already, to be able to say, okay, I can do this. I can, in fact, let go of this, which is what generosity is. I can, in fact inhibit this urge to do something and not do it if I feel like doing it, which is renunciation, which is one of the paramitas. You think about it, it's an amazing human trait that we can feel like doing something and not do it. I always like to think about um, uh, the cartoons in uh, which, which you probably have seen a hundred variations of, but uh, one of them would be someone who just opened their front door uh, and their uh, cat has brought home a bird and dead and left it on the front mat. So all variations, you open your door and the cat has eaten the fish in the fishbowl or the cat has torn up all the upholstery or one, you know, one or another bad thing. Dog has chewed through a door. And the, the caption is always something like, Oh, Fifi, aren't you ashamed of yourself? And the thing is that the reason we laugh is Fifi is not ashamed of herself. It is a cat thing to catch birds if they're in the backyard. They feel like it and they do it. They, they, they don't feel like it and then think to themselves, wait a minute, the lion lies down with the lamb. I won't, you know. They do it. And human beings feel like doing things and they don't do it, you know. The story of King Ashoka is that he felt like responding to the lust for greater wealth or greater land. It felt like the passion for triumphing in war. And he decided that that wasn't the most comfortable way to feel in the world, actually. That there was no end to lust and passion and greed. There isn't an anger. The more you get, the more you want. It, like, it's kind of like um, popcorn, salty popcorn in the movies. You know, the more you eat, the more you have a thirst for more of it. You know, that there is no way of slaking lust, actually, other than 
deciding that you'll do something else instead, which is really what renunciation is. And we all do it. I mean, that's the essence of a spiritual, of a, of a, of a society that works, not even a spiritual community, but a, a society that works. If we didn't have an agreed set of rules, we'd run amok if everybody did everything that they feel like doing. It's a wonderful list. I tried to remember to bring it last week. It's Houston Smith's list. It's in the uh, it's in the World Religions by Houston Smith. Formerly called the Religions of Man. I wonder whether he changed it <laughs> because of the gender reference. <laughs> anyway, it's the most wonderful book on. Uh, it's been in publication probably 30 years on the great spiritual traditions of the world in a wonderful, short, um, but valuable, full of, um, full of the important, relevant parts of the great spiritual traditions. And in the beginning, he talks about uh, what's uh, universal to all of them, generic to all of them, um, and one of them is a code of morality. And he said there are certain rules by which human beings have discovered that it works to live together. And one of them is you don't hurt other people around you because that doesn't work and then they hurt you back. We all took, those of us who were here at seven this morning, recited the precepts. So I undertake the precept to refrain from harming living beings. The second one is I undertake the precept to refrain from taking that which is not given. And he has such a sweet way of putting it, I always remember it at this point, where he said it's quite all right in most societies for everyone to amass as much as they can on their own pile, but not to take from someone else's pile, that you just cannot do that. Actually, we... We admire people with big piles that they've amassed. Alas, it's not the best thing about people, I'm sure, but <laughs> I think that we, we kind of have a veneration of people who've been clever enough to collect a big pile of stuff. But you can't take it from somebody else's pile, nor can you become sexually involved with someone else's sexual partner without getting into a certain amount of trouble. Nor can you tell lies about other people. Um, don't remember what this fifth one is. I'll look it up by next week, and whether it because those four match what we say here, but we say it in Pali, but you could say it in any one of the world's great spiritual traditions. So there's a whole so morality and renunciation and generosity, the ability to let go, and patience which is the ability to let be, be able to say, it's not happening yet. It's a lot of tension in my mind because whatever it is that I wish were happening or I wish were over and weren't happening anymore, it's not happening yet that way. But I can be here. That's what patience is. And truthfulness is the ability to say, look, this is how it is. Sometimes seeing what's difficult. But being able to... It's also truthfulness is a way of uh, announcing that you feel uh, safe in the situation. Just tell the truth. Unguardedness. There's something very um, uplifting to me to be with people who are without guile. 
really truthful, truthfulness. When you're with children and they shout out in a supermarket, three years old, that person is so big, you know, for somebody <laughs> who's, you know, seven feet tall or something. And you say, shh, don't say that. The person is very big, you know. But, uh, but we, you know, it's not nice to say, oh, that person has a very big nose. Or, you know, <laughs> you know on, on the one hand, that person probably knows that they're very big. And it's not like news to them. And we forgive three-year-olds for saying that. But there's something very lovely about the lack of guile. That you trust people who have a lack of guile because you figure they're going to tell you the truth as well. They're, it's sometimes very disarming when people tell you a lot of truth right away. But it's lovely. A little while I'll read you a story that <coughs> someone told me the truth. It's very. There's a way in which when someone tells you the truth, it's very uplifting. Because we all have the same truth. Maybe I'll get to do that right away. Just let me say the rest of the list. Generosity, morality, renunciation, patience, wisdom, uh, truthfulness, determination, energy, loving kindness, and equanimity. It's a little bit in the wrong order. Energy goes earlier up. But they are all the qualities of a purified heart. Um, This practice of mindfulness is often called the path of purification. And uh, what I think about it is, it's not, I, I don't think of it as meaning that there's something inherently impure about the heart um, and that has to be purified like it's sinful or corrupted. I think those are the, qualifi- the, 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 the capacities or the qualities of the heart. I think what is purified are the tendency to confusing mind states that cloud the mind and the heart and prevent those qualities from shining through. Did you see that there was an Abbey catalog a poster some years ago that said something about, uh, I believe in the sun even when, even when there's clouds, I believe in the sun. <coughs> something like trusting the, the, the capacity of the heart. There's something like that that even when I am impatient, even when I don't feel loving kindness, even when I don't feel equanimous, or I feel like I can't let go of something, even when there's something I cannot renounce, I remember that it is a possibility of the human heart. I'm not doing it now, but it's a possibility. There's some clouding thing that's happening that's preventing me from doing it but I don't have to learn how to do it I just have to get rid of the cloud or wait for the cloud to dispel which is really what happens mostly I think there are things to do to I don't know well, let me think about it a minute what I think is more accurate 
it's not, it's not a because I, 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 you can't blow away the clouds. If the day is cloudy, I can pff, go outside and blow forever. I can't blow the clouds away. <sighs> the clouds of the mind are different from the clouds in the sky, though. This is a way in which we construct them with the habits of the mind. They're like uh, walls. If I stop constructing them, they fall down. That's it. I don't think I see through them. I think if I stop constructing them, they fall down, which is why it works just to stop, which is why another way that this practice is sometimes called stopping. What we do here is we come and we stop. We just stop. And even when we do the when we do sitting practice and we often have instructions, notice the breath, name the breath, notice if it's an in-breath or an out-breath or a long breath or a short breath. It's not to become breathologists or somehow <laughs> become really sophisticated about breath because we could we could set, we could give instructions that say, listen to sounds. They arise and they pass away and notice and say to yourself, arising and passing away and arising and passing away. But what will you learn? That things arise and pass away, that they're temporarily? You know that to begin with. You know it a little bit more in the marrow of your bones, actually, if you pay attention to it. But the main reason for those instructions is while you're busy doing that, you're not building walls. That's really the main reason. If you give yourself something to do that is plain and right here and ordinary, then the mind is not building walls of resentment and bitterness and unhappiness. I uh, uh, mentioned earlier this morning that I was listening to NPR yesterday as I was in my car. And uh, you probably know that we're in the middle of the playoffs of... uh, the uh, Los Angeles Lakers and the Philadelphia 76ers of the NBA Finals. How many people didn't know that? <laughs> How many people did know that? <laughs> About 50-50. How many people know that uh, Phil Jackson, who is the coach of the LA Lakers, is a Zen meditator? Is that a well-known fact? But it is. He wrote a book called More Than a Game, and it's just out. I was thinking of sending away for it, actually, because it's a, it's a, I'm, I'm sure it's about basketball as well. But um, the interview on NPR with Terry Gross, I tuned in just before she said I uh, was watching the game last night. They're in Philadelphia. That's why he's being interviewed. The game was in Philadelphia. And NPR national headquarters are in Philadelphia. Anyway... Um, she said, uh, just when you came on the court, because Philadelphia is such a uh, sports-minded city and they're so excited about their team possibly winning, said when the Lakers came out on the court, everybody booed. And when you came out on the court, that's very unsportsmanlike, I think. This is my side comment. But anyway, <laughs> everybody booed. And when you came out, everybody booed. They said, didn't you feel bad? He said, well, I did, you know, feel a little bit bad. And uh, he also talked about the, the stress. It's tremendously stressful to, when you get down to the end. Of, did you feel stressed by this? And uh, he said, well, often I do. He said, because there's so much chaos going on there and it's a loud noise. Oh, he talked about one time 
when they were playing playoffs in the in Madison Square Garden, where apparently the basketball court is on the fifth floor of that building. There must be several layers below ground level. And he said it's a um, it's a suspension floor. And uh, he said the, 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 the screaming and the hollering, apart from the running around and playing, was shaking the floor. And he said so that it was really you could feel in your body that it was a little bit disarmed. And he said, what I do, he said, is I've discovered that there's a place of balance and centeredness and quiet that's right in the middle of me all the time. And I can go there in the middle and I can catch my breath there and I can balance myself out from there. I thought it was a great description of, of uh, the possibility of tuning in on the possibility of balance. Upeka is the Pali word for equanimity, and it comes from the root of the word that means balance. Equanimity does not mean blah, does not mean that nothing ever changes that kind of balance, perfectly balanced in the life. It means that I don't lose my balance and fall down. It means that my center of gravity is, maybe that's what it means, my connection somehow, my inner balance is so strong that I don't fall over. Do you know, I just have the image, do you know about... um, Sufis whirling, they can dance for a long time, and and they whirl. Um, they're not spotting as dancers are taught to spot on on the wall. They're not spotting on the wall. They're they're really feeling an internal um, locus around which they balance, and then they can whirl and whirl and whirl and whirl and whirl and not get dizzy. It's a little bit different from not falling over. My friend and colleague and teacher, Sharon Salzberg, years ago, told, uh, use this metaphor. I'm trying them all out this morning to see which one I really like. (laughs) You tell me when you finish. Talking about that one, talking about the... uh... She said it's like walking on a tightrope life. She says you walk on a tightrope, and you try not to lose your balance because there are always there are always things that happen. The wind blows this way, or sudden lust comes up, or sudden aversion comes up, or sleepiness comes up, or jitteriness comes up. And you're trying not to lose your balance. And so, so you're trying really hard to walk on this tightrope. And I said, every once in a while, though, you lose your balance and you fall off. But then you discover that there's another tightrope underneath it, and you're on that one, and you keep on going. And then you try really hard, and then you fall, but then there's another tightrope underneath. And she didn't quite finish it. She, you know, I, I, uh, that, you know, there's always a tightrope, was what she wanted to say. My, my image at that point, because I was sitting next to her, she was doing it, and we said so together, is, is that... It began to be for me not so much a tightrope as a web, like a net that uh, that you can't fall out of, like, and not even a net that that's below you, but a net that's the net, like Indra's net. That that there's no way you can fall out of this life and out of this world, 
that the life and the world are holding us all the time. We can't fall out of it. You can feel like you're falling sometimes. But where could you fall? Um, the most beautiful statement of that that I ever read, I think, see, sweetheart, you don't have everything you need. I <laughs> yes, I do. I can do it by heart. Um, is the last page of a book called The Cosmic Code by Heinz Pagels. Uh, Heinz Pagels was the husband of uh, my friend Elaine. And uh, he was a quantum physicist. And uh, um, 10 years ago, 11 years ago, um, 11 years ago, at least, maybe 12, he was hiking in Aspen in the summer um, because they spent summers in Aspen. And he was a very uh, accomplished climber, really a, a, a mountain climber with equipment. So he was skilled at climbing. Uh, but he wasn't climbing. He was just having a walk with some friends along a mountain ridge. And there was shale and a loose edge of the ridge. And the shale gave way, and he fell and slid off the side of the mountain and was killed. In the last page of The Cosmic Code, which is the last book that he wrote in his life, um, on the very last page, it said, um, I'm a dreamer. And it was a book about quantum physics. He said, uh, I dream I'm a mountain climber, I'm a climber. And I dream quite a lot about falling. And uh, it's not unusual, he said, for climbers to dream about falling. He said, so I had a dream that I was climbing and that suddenly the rock gave way. And I clutched at trying to get a hold. But uh, I realized that my hold was slipping. And he said, in the dream, I realized that the mountain, the rock was going to give way. And then I was going to fall. And he said, but then I realized, where could I fall in the whole cosmos? And at that point, he said, I let go. And sang to the stars. Let me see if I can do the last word right. Uh, made my peace with the world and sang to the stars. Or one way back and forth like that. I will bring that for you next week as well. <coughs> And as well as as well as Houston Smith's five ways. But really, where can we fall out of this world? I mean, for some period of time, here here this constellation of body is together, but the consciousness is certainly much bigger than that. A mind certainly much bigger than that, and not in the body. I've never quite been clear about how people say, I went out of my body, I'm never quite sure I'm in it. Uh, uh, or that I don't know what's in it that's not out of it. I know that there's a locus of conscious awareness. I mean, I see you visually with these eyes, this is what's happening. But there are sometimes that people report looking down on a scene from the ceiling. And, um, 
or being in a, another location doing remote viewing from another place and knowing what's happening. So even though that's only happened to me just a couple of times and don't know how, I, and completely not at will, um, I don't know how to do it. I know that it's doable, feasible. So I know that the consciousness isn't located in this body and bounded by these, this edge. So I have to think about what's going to be the, turn out to be the best uh, definition for equanimity. Um, the reason for thinking about it for me is um, I had thought when I began, um, did I finish the list of the parameters? I did. Equanimity is the last of them. I think actually they're all permutations and combinations of each other. Um, I think they are. Um, that when I think about equanimity, when I began my practice, I was really hoping, I think, more for calm than for equanimity. I didn't think about equanimity very much. Actually, if I thought about it at all, I probably worried about it. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to be calmer than I was in my life, but I was a little worried about uh, equanimity because I, this was the mid-70s and people were meditating. We had peculiar ideas about what would happen if you meditated. And uh, when we met... Um, uh, renowned meditation figures, sometimes they had a peculiar, or peculiar to us, uh, demeanor. I mean, they sat with rapt attention, or we heard stories about people who could sit in meditation for days, or die sitting on their zafu and no one would know about it for three days. And <laughs> <coughs> Those are actually stories, and I was very affected by those stories. Uh, and it's a great spiritual attainment, I'm sure, to be able to do that. That wasn't what I wanted. Um, um, but I did want to be more calm. I worried a little bit about having so much equanimity. I heard in that same tradition of dying on the Zafu and not, not having no one notice, were really stories uh, that said um, I could run, th I could be run through by a sword and not bat an eye, and I was really worried about that because I I have a much more passionate style in my life. I I have quite a big family. I'm very lucky in that regard. Even if I hadn't had such a big family, I'd be a passionate person. I think. And I want to bat an eye at the end. I really do. I, uh, I, uh, I, I don't want to struggle when I die, but I, I hope that I, I hope that what I hope is I'll be able to say I wish I had more, but okay. That's what I hope. Not fully I'm glad to be finished or anything like that. <laughs> I hope. I hope. I, I hope I get to say, if I had a choice, I'll let you think about what you'd like to have. I hope I want to say, I wish I had more. You know, I could always hear the news tomorrow and see what's new. Did they actually sign that peace treaty? Did they actually discover the cure for cancer? It's interesting, you know. Not even with my personal family. I'll always be interested in what did they do the next day. And 
So I wanted to be, I, I was concerned a little bit, I'd have so much equanimity I wouldn't have passion. But equanimity, I think, is that you do it all and you have a space for it all. You don't get stuck in one particular piece of your story. Remember reading some years ago, Václav Havel said uh, that uh, the definition of hope was to be able to say no to what was exactly in front of you. I thought that was so interesting that this fills up the space in front of you. And what I got when he said that is it doesn't, saying no doesn't mean this isn't here. It is here, but it's not all that's here, that there's a space around that. When there's something in front of you, particularly something awful that's happened, it fills up all the mind space, doesn't it? You forget that there's a world around there. It's really, it's, it's very functional for human beings. I mean, if a person in your family is sick, if you are sick, you make your whole attention on it. The world disappears. The L.A. Lakers are nothing. Nothing is anything. Poetry is nothing and basketball is nothing. Nothing is anything except what's here. And that needs to come up in us because that, that's really, it's in the DNA. It's what keeps us alive. It's what allows us to take ourselves and what's precious to us and run with it and take care of it. It's part of the preservation of the species. I'm sure it is built into us. So we need to narrow that focus, but we don't need for the focus to get stuck there. You know, that that's the whole thing. I think that there are, that those walls in the mind that we put up can be functional, like that wall of, okay, do this now. I'm trying to think of the last time that there was something that I had to really think about. And everything else falls away. You just do what needs to be done. It was probably somebody. Oh, a, a, a colleague of mine called me from um, Israel the other day. And uh, her husband had suddenly had, uh, he's well now, he will be well, suddenly had some massive heart problem. And she said, in that moment, and she was alone with him at the time, she said, uh, you function absolutely amazingly on what to do the next second. Fear does not arise. Nothing arises in that moment. You have fear, and then all of a sudden your sights come in, and you know who to call and what to do, and you do it, and you hold it together, and you make all the decisions, and you go, and you do, and you do, and you go, and you arrange for your children, and you do everything, and three days later, when it's okay, you discover you're frightened. And, that, uh, and then you, that you're incredibly grateful also. And so there's all that space around it. But meantime, you do what you have to do. So it's about rediscovering afterwards when you're not in the midst of needing to keep yourself completely alive, that there's more around this, that you were frightened, and you are still now, but it's okay, and you can manage the fear, and you are grateful, it's okay, you can manage that, that it's all manageable, that there is space. The name of Sharon's second book is as, the, A Heart As Wide As The World. 
And it's such a good metaphor. Maybe it's a better metaphor than the tightropes or the spinning dervishes. It's a heart as wide as the world. Then you don't get stuck in anything, and then you're at home in the whole world. You're not frightened by anything that happens. Early this morning, in the early morning sitting, we um, talked about, was there a, space, a time that you can remember and a place that you can remember where you felt completely safe? And people remembered places in nature or places that they went to where they felt safe. But, not but, and, and to be able to feel safe in a life like there's nothing that can happen to you that isn't part of life, feel safe in a life. I'll read you a story. I started a conversation not long ago with a woman in the airport in Newburgh, New York by saying, Are you looking forward to this flight? I was waiting for my flight to Chicago. She had come from Chicago and was waiting for her connecting flight back to West Virginia. I noticed that when the young man with her had settled her into her seat next to mine saying, stay here, Grandma, I'll go get you a Pepsi, she had just sat, not reading, not looking around, not rummaging in her purse, not doing any of the things old women do in airport boarding lounges. No, not too much, she responded. It's only the second time I've flown. Flying here day before yesterday was the first time. She half turned her face to me and spoke quietly, but seemed glad to talk, more shy than nervous. Why did you come, I asked. My granddaughter was getting married, so I wanted to come. We talked for a while about the wedding. I asked about the church and the service and the minister and the bride's dress and the wedding cake, and each time she smiled, still faced only partly toward me, and told me something particular enough to let me know that she was enjoying our conversation. Then I said, is this granddaughter the child of your son or your daughter? She's the child of my daughter, she answered still quietly, still half looking, but not smiling. But my daughter died 10 years ago of stomach cancer. I waited a moment and took a breath and said, was that the worst thing that ever happened to you? She thought for a little bit and then said, no, I think it was my first husband's death that was the worst thing that ever happened to me. I waited, wondering what to say next, Uh, caught up short, not so much by the pain in her life as by her capacity to reflect about degrees of worseness. Then the conversation seemed to pick up by itself. Her second husband had also died. Her first child, a son, had been stillborn. A second son had died after Vietnam, something to do with Agent Orange, she thought. One daughter was still living. She had three great-grandchildren in West Virginia. Her voice was modulated, her story straightforward. The remembering aloud of the major grief of a lifetime in five minutes to a stranger seemed remarkable in its ordinariness, acceptable to her. I said, are you a religious woman? She looked up, turned straight to me for the first time, and smiled. I do the best I can, she said. (laughs) 
Does your church hold you up? I asked. They do, she said, but you know what? I have very good neighbors. I talk to my neighbors. Her grandson returned with apologies about the line being too long at the concession stand to get a Pepsi and news that their flight was boarding. As they left, I noticed that the man seated on the other side of me was also gathering up his hand luggage, and I watched him walk off in another direction toward another plane. I wondered about him. Surely another whole universe of stories, some beautiful and probably very many of them painful. Everyone walking around in the middle of their whole personal universe of what the Buddha called the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 woes and doing the best they can, talking to their neighbors, telling the truth, listening to the truth, and then getting up and keeping going. (laughs) Thank you for the applause. It's an equanimity story for a book on paramitas. Because I think that that's what it's about. That we just tell our stories. This happened and that happened and this happened and that happened. And this was terrible. And this was great. It was good wedding cake. It was good wedding cake. The bride was beautiful dress was beautiful. The minister was wonderful. It's great good fortune that she met the man that she met, came to Chicago to get a job from rural West Virginia, met this young boy who'd come there from some other place. So it's magic, really, that two people from two rural venues come to Chicago for their first job and meet each other working for the warehouse, a lumber company, and get married and have a whole life. I hope a whole life. That everything is magic. I mean, that's just as magic. If that magic is going to happen in the world, then it all has to have happened. I mean, it's a world full of... Weddings and births and funerals and namings and uh, and still wars and Agent Orange and sometimes people say it's all fine. Not sure it's all fine. I think it's all lawful as 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 long as there is greed and hatred and delusion, they will be Agent Orange. Even if there weren't greed and hatred and delusion, there would still be cancer. Maybe not for long. They'll figure it out. But then there'll be something else. And there will still be old age, sickness, and death, even if they figure out everything else. We won't be bionic people. For which I'm grateful. Because bionic people won't have human hearts. I hadn't thought about that until just this very second. Bionic people won't have human hearts. And as long as we have human hearts, we have everything we need. We can actually do all of those things. Be patient and wait and tell the truth 
and let go and not do something that we feel like doing if it wouldn't be good for everybody. And uh, just do our lives and tell it to other people and listen to theirs and then just get up and keep going. It's amazing, isn't it? I forgot about the uh, the uh, eating meditation we were going to do. We'll do it. We are, in fact, breaking bread together is what we're doing because we have leftover bread from... <laughs> if you come in the morning to... Uh, this is not a bribe. This is just the truth. <laughs> if you come in the morning... <laughs> to uh, the 7 o'clock meditation, the next one happening on the 11th of July. We, uh, we recite those precepts about what we undertake personally to hold as the guidelines for living in a life. And then we talk about them, we chant them, we talk about them, and then we share breakfast together. But it'd be nice to share. I can smell even through this saran that this is banana bread. So we'll do it as a meditation. Uh, we'll pass it around. Don't, uh, don't eat it yet. Just hold on to it. And we can pass it in a, in a minute. So as it comes, first of all, you can smell it as it comes. I'd like you to notice as part of eating meditation, which we do all the time on retreat, and which you could do at however many times a day you eat, but you notice that the minute it's here and you smell it, you start to salivate. And if I tell you it's banana bread, I bet you could salivate even before <laughs> it's anywhere near you. Don't you taste the banana bread? That's an amazing thing, isn't it? That is magic. If you think banana bread and you taste that in your mouth, that's a piece of magic. Imagine that. Can you imagine the neurons that have to fire for you to taste banana bread when you don't have it in front of you. But it, it depends on memory. It also depends a lot on how much you like banana bread. You know, that, uh, that, that, that uh, nearness to you. Also, if I've just said I'm passing around bread and we're going to break it together, and you have a wheat allergy and you can't eat this for some reason, or a nut allergy, let me tell you, I now see there's nut in here, so I have to tell you all, because a lot of people have nut allergies. This is not in here, okay? <laughs> if, you, if you are the kind of person that cannot eat nuts or cannot eat wheat or for other reasons of dietary concerns or religious concerns, cannot eat this, diet, this piece of banana bread, you may suddenly feel badly. We're all going to do something that you're not going to do. So I apologize for that. Um, we will not be in any more holy communion with each other <laughs> if you do not do this. Um, you can pass it by, and we are already in a kind of sacred communion with each other just by having sat together with the same intention to purify the heart. We were in that communion with each other before we did it, just by coming, because we had that intention. You might be in a place where you're thinking, what if they run out of it before it gets back to me? 
you might have noticed a little bit of alarm. Did you know anybody notice a little bit of alarm? I noticed that in, on retreats when I'm at the end of a meal line and I see that people are taking huge portions of food. And then I think to myself, what if there's nothing left? We actually cook so much here so that that never happened. But, uh, it's very reassuring. In the early days when the snow was whiter and colder, you see, than now, uh, which as you get older you get licensed to say, but we were very much stricter about um, following the precept, which is not taking any uh, meal after the noontime. And so on retreat, tea was tea. And uh, as in, in some retreats, we'd have a bucket of plums up out on the table with a bucket of tea. And you would come down the line with your cup and ladle yourself a cup of tea and take one plum, which is a little bit of a, um, um, per, what do you call it? They take a, a liberty with the notion of no solid foods past noontime, which is what we do here on monastic retreats. We don't have food after noontime. But people know that in advance. But when we were doing the one plum, and I was on the back of the line, and you see somebody take two plums out of that, out of that pail in the front, you realize that your heart closes down. First of all, first of all you have a, a hit of fear, I won't get a plum. Then you get a hit of a bad feeling on that person who took the two plums. Both of them very unsaintly and unholy. But they're part of the human condition. Does everyone have a piece? Okay. Almost? Everybody yet? Everybody have enough? Otherwise we'll share. Okay. Everybody has. This is eating meditation. Smell it. Notice what happens, especially notice if you like it, if you don't like it, if you salivate. If you think to you, if you, the desire arises to put it in your mouth, you're not doing that yet, put it back down in your hand, look at it. It's interesting to look at banana bread. I mean, never look at it that much, we just kind of put it in the mouth. What if you were... Uh, 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 a nine-month-old child, and you were, someone gave you that for the first time, what would you think about it if someone put that in your hand? Probably you'd smell it if you were a nine-month-old child and wanted to know it. They more or less put everything in their mouth. Maybe they, I don't know if they look at it. They just put everything in their mouth. That's right. Then they spit it out if it's not good. <laughs> so we're looking at it and we're smelling it. Um, Norm Fisher's grace that they say at Zen Center uh, begins something like, as we get ready to eat this food, we remember in gratitude those uh, animals and creatures of uh, land and sea whose joyful endeavors not separate from ours, are part of what we're about to eat. Something like that, close to that. 
All turning in the wheel of life, not separate from ours. May our taking of this food sustain us in our lives and in our practice. Um, so that we can continue. This is something like norm. I don't know it by heart. Some, so that we are able to be sustained as we continue our work and our lives on behalf of all beings. Now take it and put it on your tongue, but don't chew it. <laughs> it's interesting, you know? When you get ready, chew it. Around me, oh, that's a big experience, isn't it? Mm -hmm. On retreat, we tell people don't take the next bite until you're finished with everything about this because you tasted a long time. Sometimes we tell people to watch when the desire arises in there to have some more. Mind says, pick up some more, get some more. <laughs> so may you be sustained in your lives. May we all be sustained in our lives until, until forever on behalf of all beings. And we'll see each other next week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.